Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. Hello, my name's Chris Dolman, and today we'll be hearing from Angel Yuen, a private therapist and school social worker from Toronto, Canada. Angel has taught narrative ideas in several different countries for over a decade, and is the author of various papers as well as the book Pathways Beyond Despair, reauthoring lives of young people through narrative therapy. Earlier I met with Angel to hear about some of the ideas and practices she draws on in her work with children and young people and adults who've been subjected to abuse and violence and oppression. We discussed her particular interest in working with children to co-discover and seek out hopeful and effective ways of responding to trauma and hardship. Hi Angel, thanks, uh, thanks for joining us today. It's great to have you for this uh, podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So Angel, I've heard and read that you describe uh, your work with children and families as providing uh, pathways beyond despair. Yeah. And I was wondering if um, I'd love to ask you about those pathways actually, but before we get on to that, I'd love to hear a bit more about um, uh, the kind of despair you're referring to. Could you say something about the kind of despair uh, you come across in your work with children and families? Sometimes I think of the same as despair when young people and children have been subjected to abuse, violence, uh, many traumas, I guess we could say, that happened um, to young people and families, but also in communities, illness, depression. Uh, there have been many young people who I've seen, you know, when I say abuse and violence, um, have been harmed by sexualized violence, physical harms, put-downs, racism, homophobia. Unfortunately, the list is, is really long. Um, but, um, you know, in the school ground, sometimes what we call bullying, where children are really just called sometimes the unimaginable, you know, derogatory kinds of things that really sort of hurt their hearts and their souls and really affect you know, how they feel in this world or with other people. Yes, yeah. How is the despair and the hopelessness and um, how does that show itself in the lives of children? Like, how is it evident in a way, yeah, to them and to others? Yeah, well, in my work in schools, sometimes um, young people might become very quiet, where before they were really maybe more lively. Sometimes we see young people not attending school or physically they're having, I know a lot of really young children I've seen who would say they have tummy aches. You know, I sometimes try to not always use sometimes the professional language we have, like big words, like for example, anxiety. Um, they may say instead, they, you know, the tummy worries or the nerves or, yeah, so things like that. This is how kind of um, some children speak about this mm -hmm. despair in a way through these um, describing what's going on in their bodies yeah. as well. Yeah. You've mentioned a whole yeah, whole lot of different ways they kind of speak to them. Are there sort of um, uh, other descriptions you hear from children that are quite common when they're talking about what you're calling despair and, and hopelessness? Yeah, well sometimes um, despair could be statements such as, I don't want to be here anymore. You know, why does this happen? Why is this happening to me? I feel like I don't belong. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
you know, when you're meeting with a, a child or young person and they're, and they're saying things even like, um, you know, I don't want to be here, why is this happening to me, I can't, I can't go on, mm-hmm. what are your initial intentions at this point as you're beginning to hear about this from, from yeah. children? Yeah. Well, I always want to make sure I really acknowledge that um, suffering or the effects, because they're, when, when somebody's really going through such a hard time, that's really, it feels really important to richly acknowledge those effects. And at the same time, I, I'm always thinking that there, there's always another story. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be about, I'm always believing that young people and children have skills, even though they might not feel it at the yeah, time. Wrong. That, and if they're, so I'm always trying to see that if I can help emerge another story or, so when I say that, it could be a story about skills or, something that they value so for I, I always think that friendship is is such a beautiful storyline that we can try to okay. to bring out um, that could be a value and sometimes they don't feel there's always someone who cares about them and and wants to support them and um, so I'm always yeah thinking that we can I, I call it doubly listening okay. that mm-hmm. on the one side there's a story of hardship and suffering and not having hope but that we're always believing there there's another story that we can bring out of the shadows okay. yeah. can i just ask you about skills you'd like to speak more about ask you more about that later but when you're saying skills like what, what do you what do you mean by children's skills skills so i think i i have this term called that really believing not just children but people of all ages have skills and knowledges that they have actions that maybe they take in getting through despair so i i think people have skills in getting through tough times so i kind of like that phrase yeah, sure. skills in getting through tough times and that's kind of a even despair is probably a big word for a little child right sure, but sure. but skills in getting through um so that could be Maybe they do things to comfort themselves. Maybe they um, have ways of lessening the effects of these difficult times Mm -hmm. or if it's a trauma story. Um, So for example, it could be, I like to draw and color because it it helps just to get all the things out of my head and it calms me down. And it could be a skill in getting through. Could be, um, I've had, I, I just had, a young person say, I just count. You know, I, I'm walking on the street and we have sidewalks in Canada with <laughs> uh, lines okay. and, you know, I, I count, you know, every 20 and then I start all over again. And I know that might seem really little, mm-hmm. um, but I try to not make that kind of, you know, this little thing that they just did. I try to just stay there and say, oh, tell me about, you came here this morning, you were so upset you're having a hard time after all that fighting that your mom and dad were doing and you decided to go one two three in your head and um, I think that's a skill Mm -hmm. it's a skill in calming themselves down it's a skill in getting through it's a skill in lessening the anxiety or whatever they want to call the anxiety mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah and so these skills uh, could be you said quite little not, yeah. not grand yeah but just quite exactly little. that's a great um, way of saying it um, not grand just little. small skills yeah yeah angel's experience in working with children and young people who face trauma and other hardships was really interesting especially how she emphasized the importance of finding ways in her work to acknowledge the difficulties children have faced and also being really curious about how the child has responded to their situation, the skills they have drawn on, 
the actions they've taken to get through those difficult times. I asked Angel to firstly say a bit more about what she is doing when she's acknowledging the tough situations that children have been through and how it's affecting their lives. And then I went on to ask her about hope. I think about that when children and young people and families come to see me as a child and family therapist, that what is in the counselling room is, is not separate from what's happening outside of the counselling world. I think it's ex inextricably linked. So when I, what I mean by that, um, there are always these broader stories of, in my context in Toronto, I happen to work in inner city schools where I was, so, so stories of poverty socioeconomics and that there are gender stories and, and where, where um, my context where it's a very diverse community, multicultural in Toronto, that, that there are stories of culture and race and families who are coming from different countries. So even say, for example, someone might come in with um, what we call symptoms or effects of depression or anxiety, trying not to individualize these problems. That what do you mean, uh, not, uh, not individualised? Uh, that um, there are, are, are broader power relations. So I'll give you one phrase that might help to just kind of illustrate it. It, it comes from Vicki Reynolds, who's an activist in British Columbia, Canada, and she says, it's not depression, it's oppression. Does, does that help sure. to convey? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and so individualizing depression often can be an internal story attached to someone and, and their individualized symptoms. And um, but when it's it's more, I, I think, political mm -hmm. than that. Mm -hmm. That um, you know, when people are, are dealing with oppression, that could be, for example, racism. Um, that could be sexism. It could be homophobia, transphobia. And um, for families where they're just trying to put food on the table. <laughs> yeah, sure. You mentioned um, in your work how part of it is, you regard part of your work as, uh, as doing hope mm. in your work with, um, mm -hmm. with, with uh, children and families. How do you go about kind of creating a context for hope with mm -hmm. families? Well, first, uh, and I'll answer the question, when people are really struggling, you know, I know we have this diagnosis that's called post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, diagnoses are, are something that can be really helpful for people. They feel, oh, this helps me to give more meaning to what's going on for me. Um, um, but the reason I wanted to name that um, is sometimes, you know, this is, we don't actually officially have an OTSD, but we have a PTSD. And what I refer to the O is yes. ongoing traumatic stress. It's not an official diagnosis, but some people really are not dealing with the post. They're not dealing with what's after. They are currently an ongoing living with injustice, with suffering, sometimes mm -hmm. just really unimaginable circumstances. Yes. And so that idea of hope and holding on to hope, some people are just really clinging. I, and I've, that's just so much of my work. And so I'm always interested in what keeps you going, what sustains you. For some, it's like what helps to keep you living, what, what helps you to hold on. So back to your question about hope, it is really significant. And um, you were asking me about this this interesting notion of uh, uh, doing hope. Yeah. It, uh, that phrase doesn't come from me, it comes from Kate, Katie Weingarten. Okay. 
um, who's from the U.S. And if you were to look her up, I remember this phrase that she had um, about um, we're doing hope together with people. So I, th I just found that really, it just really stood out that she, she turned hope into a, a verb versus a noun. That we're doing hope there. together, which is really relational. And people are often in isolation when they are not, or, or when they're feeling it's hard to hold on to hope. So this notion of that we can do hope together with people, and sometimes we are that person, you know, counselors, family therapists, where, you know, I remember well, not just one person, but many people saying that if I didn't have this hope with you, I, I don't know what I would what I would do. So just to know that even if one person can help them to hold on to hope. Angel talked about the start she takes when working with children and families in relation to hope. Hope is a verb, an action, and as relational rather than as existing in isolation. So I asked her for a small example of a practice she draws on when hopelessness may be quite overwhelming for children and families. So it becomes slightly less overwhelming for them and, and hope can come more into the picture. And then she continued to talk about the relationship between hope and language. So I have what are called wish questions. And what I mean by that is sometimes it's hard for people to think about how they are mm -hmm. doing hope or what is sustaining them. And, and, and they will often, I often hear, I, I don't know, I'm not sure, it's too hard. And a question sometimes I'll ask that I, I have found does create an opening. And I'll say, you know, I know it might not, you know, right now it's feeling that's hard to answer. If you wish you could hold on to hope, what would you be wishing for? Because usually people can wish because it doesn't mean it necessarily has to happen, yeah. but you can hope for a wish. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, and so then people speak, begin to speak to a wish that they yeah. need to imagine something. Yeah. Is that what you're sort of inviting imagine, them into? Yeah, yeah. and though if, you ma if you could imagine that mm -hmm. things were better, mm -hmm. what would be happening? Right. And, and I, I have had people respond, well, I... I, could, I just wish I could wake up in the morning and not have this pain, mm -hmm, you know, wake mm -hmm. up to the pain and it could just be okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or, or I, you know, sometimes I'm, I imagine a, a world beyond and I can just escape or, or I do fantasize. Could you say something a bit more about, the, for you, the importance of paying attention to the language people use to describe their mm -hmm. experience? Like, yeah, I think language has such power and language can be uh, maybe generative and uplifting and hopeful and sometimes it can sometimes be really inadvertently diminishing for people and disempowering and that and I mean that maybe by professionals professionals in the helping mm -hmm. world you know usually obviously want to be helpful but sometimes language use can be really unhelpful so, for example, with diagnoses, sometimes I've seen when somebody receives a diagnosis, they feel that that's, it's been really helpful. Mm -hmm. And for some people, I've seen it really crushing for people and something in between. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so um, I'm really informed a lot by the practices and ideas of narrative therapy. Okay. And um, just, you know, doing whatever I can to be non-pathologizing. Right, right. And so for me, I, I say it's not, I'm not anti-diagnosis at all. Mm -hmm. I work with diagnoses all the time. But I, I would say I'm anti-unhelpful diagnosis. <laughs> okay. And so with that, I, I try to ask the meaning of what 
the language of, say, what, what would be a common diagnosis for children and families that you hear? Maybe I'll work with that. Uh, it could be like um, ADHD, for okay. example. Okay. So I may say to that child or that family, when you heard that diagnosis, ADHD, did you find that helpful or not helpful or somewhere in between? Yeah. Um, did, do you find that fits? or doesn't fit at all or somewhere in between and that's been so interesting for me to ask that question because I've really had responses here and I've had them here or I've had a child answer here and I've had an <laughs> okay. a parent answer yeah, here and so you could have yes yeah, yes and so I don't want to impose my own meaning because really it's not me living with what that diagnosis means so I really want to just see what the relationship is with that diagnosis for families and children and and um, help them to give meaning to it and also hear what it means to each other because sometimes you could have a mother and father have different meaning to it and medication so again I don't impose or say this is what you should do I just want to really help them figure out together and if it feels like a bit contrasting or conflictual help with that yeah you said that sometimes um, those kind of descriptions can be quite uh, well, I think you said crushing or limiting at times mm -hmm. of people yeah, if, if they're evaluating that description the diagnostic description is um, unhelpful what do you do with that how do you kind of respond yeah. to that or what else is possible if it's not or if it, it's more on the crushing side or someone saying, I, I don't believe, I actually just had somebody say, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. Right. <laughs> just outright it. And I said, well, if you had a naming for what's going on for you, what would you name it? Right. Okay. Yeah. Even children? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So um, even uh, young children? Yeah, really. And in fact, I love that. I love, um, so, so I mentioned with narrative therapy, Michael White, who is no longer alive, but um, a lot of his ideas, him being one of the originators of narrative therapy, I remember just um, some of his ideas of working with ADHD. If it had a color, what would it be? And if it had a size, does it have eyes? Okay. And, and children really engage with this and they make it their own. So drawing on... Um uh, children's playfulness and creativity, yeah, even in those conversations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, how do you reckon children, from your experience, experience those inquiries, those conversations, when you're asking them about that? I think they find it really engaging and they laugh and they really get into it. And I think that you use the word curiosity. Like, I think because I always think of being in a stance of curiosity, I really, I really, that children have know-how and I really want to learn from you. And as you can imagine with children, that um, you know, there's such power relations with adults and children, yes. and then particularly professionals with yes. children. So for a children to really feel that I, I really am wanting to learn and be curious from you, and so I think um, not only do they feel engaged and good and it's playful, that they might feel a bit clever, okay. proud, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that they sure. can they can let teach me their knowledge. Yes. Yeah. Uh, does that, do those inquiries ref reflect a particular view or the way you seek to position children in a way yeah. in your work in some sense? Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I really um, position children as having expertise in their own lives. I, I try to really decenter myself as a professional and center children as being able to tell me about their own lives in their own way knowing more about their own life than I would right. know. Yeah. That's yeah. what I really believe.
I think Angel has made a couple of key points here around how practitioners can position ourselves and the children we work with. She's spoken about paying attention to our use of language with children to ensure it's not inadvertently diminishing of children, but instead how it can be generative and hopeful. And what supports us in this is to be drawing on children's creativity and imagination. I asked Angel, what is it that she is hoping for the children she meets with by privileging their creativity, imagination, skills and know-how? Yeah, my hopes for them is um, I think about agency and children having agency, meaning, you know, there's another term, personal agency. And Mm -hmm. if we took agent as the agency, you know, that people are agents in their own life. I want them to know that, you know, when people, we could kind of go in the contrast, when people don't have agency, they don't feel, they really don't feel they can have any effect on their life whatsoever. Mm -hmm. There's a sense of helplessness and that hopelessness we talked about earlier. Yes. And so if children come into my room just not having a sense of agency, my hope for them is that the the agency starts to get more developed and, and elevated. So when, so when mm. you, like you said, that when that um, hopelessness or the despair is mm-hmm. present, um, one of your hopes is the agency gets elevated, Absol- gets, um, yeah. gets brought forward in some way. Yeah, yeah. and that they, they, I'm learning from them about the skills and the values and the, maybe the commitments that they have, their resistance, which are all clues to stories of agency. When you say resistance, their resistance in what sense? Yeah, I guess I haven't talked about that. That, um, you know, I'll just say when bad things, that's uh-huh. how uh-huh. young children may talk or not talk about what happens to them when, you know, whether it being harms that have happened to them, that they often feel like, well, I couldn't do anything when people were hurting me or harming me, that um, sometimes there are these stories of resistance. So. Like in, in some writing I did, I, I just, this boy is coming to mind, I called him Billy, and he knew that the more he was harmed by physical and emotional abuse, that if he showed he was upset, so if he cried or he showed any anger or upset, that he would, the, the abuse would get escalated towards him. So yeah. what he would do was he would hold his hands in his pockets and clench them so they couldn't be seen. Right. And he said, I wouldn't show them that was ups- I was upset. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't give them the satisfaction that they were hurting me, and that that's an act of resistance. Right. So not showing anything yes. A- yes. on someone's sure. face or not reacting could be an act of resistance, yeah. and so many more acts of resistance. So these acts of resistance, that uh, these skills and values and uh, things that children are kind of uh, committed to, these is all a part of what you regard as. Uh, a child's uh, agency yeah in responding to the the bad things are there things that are kind of um that have convinced you that these are helpful inquiries yeah to be making with children um certainly what i hear as far as feedback from mm-hmm. children mm-hmm. and young people mm-hmm. and so i always in every conversation i might be saying how's this conversation going is this okay and you know of course when i hear something like yeah this is this has been really helpful and then I can ask you know what's been helpful and it's this kind of a bit of a sad thing and hopeful thing for me but when I hear someone say you know this has been one of the most helpful conversations I've had <laughs> then I think right. well yeah, what sure. have your other conversations been like <laughs> right. but I get to the then ask you know well what's been helpful yeah. well 
I just feel like, I, well, I didn't know that I did all these things. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Of course, they're not using the word agency, but they're really saying to me things like, I, I didn't actually think that that was, you know, a big thing. You, and, you know, they can name those skills and they can name those things that they do. And, and, and I always have a, I'm always writing down exactly what children and young people and parents say so that instead of my professional language or me imposing bigger professionalized words, I, I can use the dark worry monster that that young girl <laughs> decided she would leave overnight in the washing machine. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, well, that's... <laughs> well, what's, yeah, how do uh, children kind of um, respond to that when they see these words, their own words being yeah. uh, recorded, I guess, in that way? Well, I think they think it's fun and they laugh. And, and, I, and I even on a post-it note, I'll, yeah, I'll put sure. that and I'll say, can you draw a picture of that? What if we showed that to your parents? Or the parents might be in the room. And I think they feel proud. Mm. And, and, and I'm also trying to link them to other young children. You know, okay. what if your idea of leaving the worry monster in the washing machine overnight with the lid down could help another eight-year-old boy I'm seeing. Would you like that? Oh, yeah, that, that they know that they're the ones helping someone else. Are they surprised by that? Are they kind yeah, of, surprise. Uh, that would be a good way. Like they get really, a, like... Uh, yeah, like as though they can, they can do that or yeah. someone else, yeah. yeah. Or they come back the next session and... And they come back with three or four more ideas of how they've helped themselves and how they can help someone else. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, this conversation has me being even more interested in some of these themes of honouring children's resistance and positioning children as making a contribution to the lives of other children and families facing similar circumstances. Angel, thanks so much for yeah. uh, joining us today. Oh, you're uh, welcome. On this podcast, really appreciated hearing about some of your ideas and some practices that you use in working with children who have um, been through some uh, tough times and, and their families. So thanks for sharing. Yeah, uh, pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health led by Emerging Minds and delivered in partnership with the Australian Institute of Family Studies, the Australian National University, the Parenting Research Centre and the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. The National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.